Hi, I'm Clemmie Telford and it's time to get open and get honest. Each week, I interview a guest about a topic that we, as a society, often shy away from. From sex lives to salaries, life and death, religion and real bodies, no subject is off the table. Welcome to Honestly, the podcast. This episode of Honestly is part of Cancer UK's Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. They gave me the opportunity to speak to two incredible women. One of them, Catherine Pointer, was diagnosed with leukaemia twice when she was a teenager. Since then, she's finished her PhD to become a fully-fledged researcher at the very same hospital where she was treated as a teenager. My second guest is Shona Scales, who is Cancer Research UK's lead paediatrics researcher. She is responsible for implementing their new strategy strategy for children and young people's cancer research, aiming to improve survival and long-term outcomes for children with cancer. What a great pair of guests. I loved talking to them and learning from their worldliness, and I hope you do too. But before we crack on, a quick thank you to our sponsor, TK Maxx. Since 2004, TK Maxx customers and associates have raised a whopping £37 million for Cancer Research UK. And you can get involved too by being part of their Give Up Clothes for Good campaign. Simply drop off a bag of your pre-loved quality clothes, accessories and homeware at your local TK Maxx store and your items will be passed on and sold in a Cancer Research UK shop and in turn will go to help fund research into cancers affecting children and young people. Not only that, you'll be giving your pre-loved items a second life by diverting them from landfill. So thank you in advance to you, and thank you to TK Maxx for sponsoring this episode. As you know, I like to start with a um, couple of quick-fire questions. Yeah. So should we crack on with those? And the podcast is called Honestly, so it's important that you're honest. But Absolutely. Imagine you wouldn't be anything else. Okay, on a scale of one to ten, how confident are you? I'd say a six to a nine, depending on the situation. <laughs> a situation like this, how confident do you feel? I, I'm i confident that I should be able to answer the questions, but I just get really nervous. So I don't yeah. know if nervousness counts as reducing confidence. No, I don't think so. <laughs> and you know what? Someone once told me that, like, it was before I was doing quite a lot of big presentations, that those nerves, it, it's like, it's your body bringing its A game, isn't it? That's your adrenaline going. So, yeah, definitely. Because I always wonder that, like, if you stopped getting nervous about stuff, that I mean, would also you don't be. Care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of. She says, I was just weighing up whether to have a coffee before this. And I know for me, my adrenaline plus caffeine is, is not a good combination. So I haven't had one. On a scale of one to 10, how patient are you? I'm either a nine or a two, depending on if there's food involved. <laughs> if I, I'm, I'm brilliant, except for if I'm hungry and waiting for food. I mean, that is one of the most relatable answers I've ever heard. It's so true. <laughs> I just turned back into a two-year-old. <laughs> Feed me now. Yeah, it's a real uh, challenge of adulthood to learn to to not get to that point, isn't it? <laughs> Easier in this kind of life where we don't go too far from home because you've yeah. always got access to your fridge. What is your favourite colour? I think I'm going to go with the red just because after black, it's the most common colour in my wardrobe. But I do like all colour. I just like really bright colours. Yeah. <laughs> Do you? When you say red, white, like pillar box red? Yeah, really bright red, like post box red, yeah. I think that's really cool. <laughs> Do you wear red lips? 
Yeah, I tend to just go with one that matches my lips anyway, because I wear so much eye makeup that if I then did a really strong lipstick, I'd look a bit, a bit much. overdone. <laughs> and again, in this life that we now live, I've got some statement um, lipsticks. So Suddenly doesn't don't really seem so necessary. <laughs> yeah, especially with wearing a mask all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so true. I haven't actually even thought about that. We put lip gloss on yesterday and, and then we got out and I had to stick my mask on and it was just sticking. It was disgusting. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. So that's bad for the for lipstick manufacturers. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. What is your favourite smell? I think like um, fresh bread is one of those smells that everyone loves. There's a theme there. Have you had lunch? I have had lunch. I got halfway through it and then the nerves kicked in and I had to stop. Couldn't go. So that's why you'd be able yeah. to go back to it. And where are you happiest? I'm always happiest at home and specifically on the sofa with some blankets. <laughs> And maybe some food. And maybe some food. In fact, definitely some food. I'm not yeah. going to lie. <laughs> Even though like, I love my job and, you know, you love going on holidays and you love going out and having fun, you always look forward to coming home. Yeah, yeah. I do feel like I've maybe spent an excessive amount of time <laughs> there recently, but, but I still do like it. So I am here to talk to you about childhood cancer, as you know, but could you tell the listeners your quite astounding story? <laughs> So yeah, I, I'm a I'm a doctor of cancer research now, and and that all came from when I was a teenager. When I was 14, I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, which is a very rare and very aggressive type of leukemia, which doesn't have a particularly good survival rate either. And it, it came out of nowhere. We don't have any family history of any kind of cancer on either side, and the symptoms were very sudden as bad as cancer is for anyone, has a massive knock-on effect for a, a child and a teenager with education, social life, all of it. Everything. We, you know, we got through it. The treatment lasted six months, went into remission, missed a whole year of school. I missed year 10. GCSEs went out the window and recovered, went back to school, managed to get some kind of GCSEs together. And then when I was 17, when I had just finished my first year of A-levels, the leukemia relapsed and I had to take another year out and have a bone marrow transplant this time because the fact that I'd relapsed had meant that my bone marrow was going to keep on failing and keep on producing leukemia no matter what we did. So we had to basically get rid of the old one and put in a new one. And even though my education got totally disrupted and ruined, I actually found what was happening to me really interesting. I'd always had a slight interest in science. I, I liked knowing how things worked, mm -hmm. but I wasn't necessarily good <laughs> at science at school. I never found the stuff that school teaches you very interesting. Mm -hmm. I was always interested in like the real life stuff. And as negative as cancer is I was also very interested and I was very fortunate that the doctors who were looking after me really picked up on that and engaged uh. with me and and would answer my questions and give me honest answers so even though GCSEs and A-levels were massively disrupted I did have this newfound interest yeah. and enthusiasm to work in science work in cancer learn more about what had happened to me and mm. then how are we going to fix it and stop it happening to other people so it's all just kind of come from there really in a nutshell <laughs> I'm just sitting here thinking that 14 and actually 17 but it's such a strange age because you're at such a personal transition when you were diagnosed how did they frame it to you yeah so it's it's really interesting actually I was I was treated on a children's ward because at the time Southampton didn't have a teenage unit they do have right. a teenage unit now but 
yeah, so the doctors either spoke to you like a tiny child, mm. which is very patronising. Especially when you're a teenager, that's and, the worst thing in the world. Yeah, and especially like they really dumbed down the language. And even though I was a teenager and I didn't have the knowledge I have now, I did want to know. Mm-hmm. Or even worse was sometimes they'd ignore me completely and just talk to my parents. Oh. I'd be there like, hi, I, I do understand what you're that's saying. My body. <laughs> I can hear you and I do have a choice here. But actually my main consultant, my haematologist, she clocked pretty quickly that I didn't know what was going on, but I wanted Mm. to know and I wanted it explained to me properly. Mm. And I wanted to, you know, be informed and make informed decisions, even though it was my parents that had to sign the consent form. My parents were happy for me to take the lead on what was happening. It's amazing. Yeah, because, yeah, it's your body. Like only you know how you're feeling I suppose and of course yeah everyone's got a valuable part in that and and was there a part of you that was worrying about missing out of school and missing yeah. out on your social life so whenever I was in hospital I wasn't allowed to leave I was in hospital because I was too ill and chemotherapy gets rid of your immune system so you're really vulnerable to infection like a common cold can mm-hmm. be absolutely devastating so when I was in hospital provided that I wasn't in isolation with an infection. I was allowed to have visitors. And my friends were actually really amazing. Like they really rallied around. And certainly like in the first part after diagnosis, they would do their best to try and come and see me and keep me in the loop. There were other times where, you know, I was so ill. And to be honest, when you're that ill, you don't really want to see anyone. You just want to like focus. And there were moments where, you know, you've got like a a friend gossiping about their boyfriend and I just thought I don't care (laughs) I've got priorities at the moment Um, so you know it's the thing about cancer is that it goes on for months and months and it's completely unlike any other illness I'd ever had up to that point where you know in a week you're going to be all right so you go through it's a real roller coaster you have ups and downs one minute you're desperate to be social and the next minute you really don't want to hear it Do you feel like it made you grow up quite quickly? Yeah, my consultant said with teenagers especially, you either turn back into a child or you grow up really quick. Fascinating. And I grew up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Once I'd recovered, I was still very much a teenager as much as I thought I knew everything. I've kind of, as an adult now, realised that as a teenager, you think you know everything. (laughs) As an adult, you realise you know nothing. You spend the whole, (laughs) it's so true. that I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, you've got to admire that part of our teens and actually our very early 20s when you do think that you're like... Yeah, well, definitely, because that's what carried me through probably. Yeah. Yeah, so I very quickly got really good at talking to very senior consultants about Mm. very personal things and having adult serious conversations but you know still very much a teenager (laughs) as much as I would hate Mm. myself admitting it at the time but very much still a teenager yeah do you get to know other teens on the ward were there many other people of your age there there were while I was actually physically being treated there were other teenagers in and around my age who Some of them had the same cancer as me, but unfortunately, the ones who had the same cancer of me were a lot worse off and didn't make it. So there was a kind of limit to how much I wanted to get involved almost because I knew, you know, you'd go and sit in their room and and chat with them and watch telly and everything. But you, you could see how bad they were. And I was aware that I had the exact same disease. And at that point, certainly early in my treatment, we didn't know how it was all going to turn out. So you're friendly and you chat and you make friends, mm. but you don't get too close. You 
don't get too involved. That's interesting. Yeah, the self-preservation, isn't there? Because you can't add a whole heap of grief onto everything else that you're going through as well. Definitely. I made more friends after I'd recovered. The ward that I was on was really good. They used to do like teenage weekends and stuff for people who had recovered. And that's when you really start to like socialise and make friends and, you know, long-term friends because Mm. everyone's kind of got through it and recovered at that point. So you feel a bit more comfortable. And I mean, what what a group of people, you know, you must feel a real <laughs> sense like you've, you've all done something pretty extraordinary, pretty young. Mm, definitely. Yeah. It's so nice to stay in touch and, and see people, you know, doing the normal things that we all yeah. just desperately wanted to do. Get married, have some kids, you know. Yeah. Be, yeah, be on the sofa. What, you yeah. Know, under just a blanket. the normal boring stuff. That's all you want to be when you're in that situation. You just want your normal boring life back. It takes most adults quite a long time to figure out that perspective, but to learn that so young, do you think that is like give you a bit of a superpower to know what's really important? (laughs) I'm still waiting on my superpower from the radiation. (laughs) Um, I'm really grateful, actually, that I've started my career is as important as my my career is to me and as good as my job is and as important as my job is. I've started my career knowing it is just a job and it Mm. is just a means to earn money to have a nice life outside of work. And if there comes a point where I don't love my job anymore, I'll go get another job that I will Mm. love. It's not worth spending the next 50 years being miserable, doing something I hate just to earn money. There are other ways to earn money that will make me happy. So at the moment, I'm very lucky. I absolutely adore my job, but I do have that attitude of, you know, yeah. if there comes a point where I don't love it anymore, it's, yeah. you know, it's okay to move but that on. probably will mean that you, you continue to love it. So let's hear more about your job and, and what you do now. <laughs> so I finished my PhD at the start of last year. And that is just a qualification that you need to have in order to become a, a research scientist, a cancer scientist. And I'm now the lead scientist for just a handful of the cancer clinical trials that we run in Southampton. We run tons and there's lots of other scientists like me. And we've each just got a group of clinical trials each that we just keep ticking along. We've got a team of technicians that we lead. We just get patient samples and those patients are obviously on the trial being treated with the drug. We get patient blood, patient tumour, and we do experiments with it to test whether or not that drug is working. Is it safe? Is the dose right? Is it doing what it's meant to be doing? And that's just my sort of day-to-day job, and it comes with a whole lot of paperwork that has to be kept in order. So how much does the cancer patient in you inform how you go about that job? Do you sit in two different roles? Do you swing between the two? So the day-to-day job, it is what it is. It's just Mm. keeping an eye on the science and making sure everything's being done to the highest possible standards. Because if you're talking about changing medicine, we need to make sure that everything's safe and reliable. But the patient in me comes in when... When things start going wrong, for example, if if a patient has blood taken and the paperwork's not done properly, so we have to take another sample. I'm like, do you realise that that patient's downstairs and they're trying to get on with their day and you're just messing them around? So do your paperwork, right? Mm. You know, things like, yeah, definitely when we have conversations about, I don't know, all sorts of things, there are certain things that clinicians and medical doctors and nurses, even though they're literally with the patient for so long they're slightly oblivious to 
So I kind of pull people up sometimes and I'm like, do you realize, you know, when you walk away from that patient, they don't get to walk away. But it's more so in the public engagement and and why that's kind of why I've started doing a lot more public engagement to kind of bring certain issues into the light. Because when you're actually going through it, you don't have the energy to complain really the capacity yeah it's so true and and also it's, it's no slight on any one service it's just that no. you can't know unless you know can you yeah definitely it's no one's fault the medicine has to be done and you know doctors yeah. have 30 40 plus patients to be worrying about so of course you can't you know but it's there's little things and especially like when you've survived cancer this is a this is one that I come up across quite a lot talking to other people who've survived you feel like you can't complain because you survived and Mm. um, oh well yeah but big picture you you know but actually the whole reason why we do research is because we're trying to improve things and you can't not complain because otherwise you're never going to make progress you need to point out the flaws Mm -hmm. and that's how you improve things so yes surviving is good but living is better so let's (laughs) let's improve it even more that's such an important insight aren't you now working in the hospital that you were treated in yeah so I was treated on the children's ward which is about two levels above my lab and I now work in the in the lab so literally my one of our trials is a pediatric trial and the lead on that trial is one of the doctors who looked after me and I did my work experience in her lab and that's when I decided oh. I liked Southampton so yeah I'm back where I started but just on the other side of the fence I mean really. what would 14 or 17 year old you say about that do you think you'd be impressed I yeah I think I when I was 14 and and I didn't and and when I was 17 and we didn't know yet that the treatment was going to work and I didn't know where I was going to end up. And then even on top of that, you know, if I survive, well, how am I ever going to recover my education? How am I ever going to get a job? And all of that, I I desperately wish that, yeah, I just remember being a teenager and wishing I could see myself in 10 years time just for a second so that I knew what, where I was going to be and if it was going to be okay and if I was going to make it and Mm. and I I so wish that I could do that and obviously I can't but that's kind of now why I I, you know do public engagement because I know somewhere out there there's going to be a 14 year old kid who's in the same situation I was who's freaking out not knowing what the future holds and it's just to show you know you can do it you can recover and and actually achieve a lot more than you ever thought you would yeah (laughs) yeah like not only is it about expanding the horizons but you've expanded the horizons like beyond and above really to go from missing such huge chunks of your education to being about to finish a PhD it's it's fairly mind-blowing there's so many parts of your story that I love but that you got married last year Yes. Didn't you? Yes, it is. Snuck in before COVID came and ruined all wedding So plans. glad, yeah. We had a very short engagement and I'm so glad we did now because otherwise and, we would have been stuck in this. Yeah, who knows. When how, um, When did you meet your now husband? We went to school together. Oh. We went to school, so he knew me throughout oh everything. We were really good friends in year 11 and first year of A-levels, but he went off to a military college. He didn't go to the same college as me. And then we kind of, when I relapsed and life just got thrown upside down, we fell out of contact just because I couldn't yeah. 
yeah he, he was always trying to like meet up with me and I was just like I can't I'm having a bone marrow transplant I'm not allowed out of this hospital room <laughs> so we kind of stopped talking and we didn't talk again for another seven years and it was just he so what when he went off to military college I made him a photo album of all of our you know year 11 times together and a Christmas mm-hmm. about three or four years ago he found the photo album in the loft and he Facebook messaged me having not spoken for seven years he messaged me and said look what I just found and I thought oh that's funny do you fancy meeting up for a drink and then it went from there no worries <laughs> making me all goosebumpy yeah. uh, and your consultant <laughs> came to your wedding is yeah. that right yeah my hematologist came to my wedding she <sighs> retired about five years ago and we had a massive party for her because she was just so everyone loved her. She was so loved. And she was she's like world leading in, in what she did. So she had a massive leaving party and I got her contact details because she's moved to Germany with her husband. And I said, Mary, I don't have anyone yet. And I don't. <laughs> but when I meet someone and you're when coming. I get married, you're coming. <laughs> so it happened. Yeah, I made her come back from Germany to come to my wedding. Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? Like the worst of times, you do still get these like magic things and more difficult subject. But you rather than wedding gifts, you ask your guests to give you money to a donation towards IVF treatment. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, that was right. Yeah. You know, we've, we've just bought our first house. We're planning on moving in, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. We had money saved up for a house. We had stuff. We didn't need any stuff or any more mm. money for a house but what we did need was money for IVF and I hadn't really ever spoken about it I don't think actually any of the wider family knew that I was infertile because of my treatment it was something that I think my mum finds probably harder than I do and so yeah we had kind of always kept it quiet I know that people and they really shouldn't but they do have a habit when they go to a wedding of going to the bride and going oh so how long until you know Mm. until you start and I didn't want that so I I put we had a wedding website and I said under like the gifts section I said because of my treatment we know that we need to have IVF so if you want to give us a gift then please give us a cash donation which we will put in a separate bank account as we save up for IVF and people responded really well to it. And, I, and I'm so happy to be like open and honest about it. Yeah. And I think a huge part of what makes, there's a real issue of like, when a, when someone says they're infertile, everyone else, especially if they've already got kids, just goes <gasps> like, and they feel like they can't yeah. talk and everyone else gets really awkward. I'm completely fine about it. I've known since I was 17, I was yeah. told before it even happened that it was going to happen. Life is difficult. But we make it doubly difficult by by not talking about the difficult bits. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, to be honest, so much of why I I now talk publicly about what happened to me and what happens to cancer patients is because no one talks about it. And especially, you know, like I was saying, the people who've survived feel like they can't complain because they survived. And actually, particularly in children and in teenagers, if you come through your cancer and, and, you know, you survive it, you've got a long time left to live potentially with some really upsetting side effects and long-term issues. And we need to start talking about it. Knowledge is power, isn't it? As I know it's a real cliche, but it is. It really yeah. is, yeah. To wind towards the end, although I could literally talk to you all afternoon, if you had some <laughs> advice for children or families who are at the beginning of this journey... 
you know, recently diagnosed, what would it be? Gosh, it's a really good question. And it's, it's a huge part of why I try to do public talking and everything, because it's relentless and it will it goes on for ages and you know cancer lasts for months if not years and there will be times where you just want to throw in the towel and I remember when I was at my very very lowest in the lead up to my transplant I wanted to give up I just in my mind I thought that there is no life that could ever be good enough to justify the pain I'm in right now I just wanted to go home and die and and that was the only point in all of it where I got that low. And, you know, fortunately, I was too ill to argue when my mum said, don't be so silly, you're nearly there. But now I wish I could go back to me. If I had a time machine, I would go back to that moment and say, for Christ's sake, just hold on, because it's mm. going to get so Hang good. It's going to be so worth it. So just keep going. Just keep going. Yeah. It will get better. Hour by hour. Yeah. Day by day. My next question was going to be if you could have an honest conversation with one person, but the, the honest conversation would be with very, very poorly Catherine. Definitely. Yeah, If I, that is the one point in my whole life I would just go back to and say, you're going to be, be fine. Right. It's going to be hard and you will have to work harder than you ever thought you were capable of, but it's worth it. So just keep going. Well, you're amazing. You're amazing. <laughs> Human capacity for survival it's remarkable isn't it yeah it's really humbling and you can carry that into every moment it is just literally just cling on you know yeah definitely it's I think even in in the in the worst possible moment there was just this most minute shred of hope that one day it might get better and that that was all it took to to keep me going and that's all you need because there is always just that what if question of it you know just it might it might get brilliant (laughs) and it really will like how many years later you'll be two floors up doing the research to help the prospects of the of the the next version of you you know definitely thank you so very much for joining me this episode is proudly sponsored by TK Maxx, who have been partners with Cancer Research UK for 16 years. Part of that is supporting the Cancer Research UK Children's Brain Tumor Centre for Excellence, which is doing vital work improving how drugs are developed for children with brain tumours. Thank you so much to Catherine for taking the time to chat to me. And now on to my second guest, Shona Scales, who's from Cancer Research UK, and her job is being the lead paediatric researcher, which sounds like quite the job. Rather than a quick fire round, Shona and I bonded over having unusual names. So let's get cracking. I know the struggle of the, the unusual name. Clemmy is not so unusual anymore, but when I was growing up, it, I found it absolutely excruciating, to be honest. I'm okay with it now, but it's like, Chloe, no, not Chloe. And then and then you miss the moment to correct people. Oh, yes. Um, so you were always the kid in class where growing up, everybody seemed to have normal names. And then yeah. they'd get your name in the register and you'd know on the first day of school that, yeah, yeah that one's me. And you'd yeah. just put your hand up, say yes. <laughs> and in those days, you could never like get... All you wanted is like a personalised pencil case or pen or... 
and he couldn't get them. And it's like that was the real struggle. These days, like in my kids' class, everyone's got an unusual name. But yeah, all I wanted was that um, pencil case, and I'd scour all the racks. And the yeah. closest thing I ever got was I found a book that was called Searching for Shona, but spelt without the, the other e. One. I've still got it. <laughs> I read that book over and over. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's, it was a real yearning, wasn't it? I was like, all I want to be doing is be called Lucy. And then like, I could get everything that I wanted. But I don't know how, I mean, now you can just get any name on anything. But it was, yeah. When you're young, you just want to be like everyone else, don't you? You do, you do. And when I was uh, naming my children, I would say, we've got an Edward because that's that's a nice, yeah. simple, safe People name. get it. <laughs> yeah. People get it. <laughs> So I have you here to talk about childhood cancer, which is actually, I mean, especially as a parent, but for anyone, it's, it's pretty much up there with one of the least comfortable things to think about because it's almost too horrendous for words, isn't it? Tell me about the work that you do and give us a bit of an insight from a professional point of view. So I'm the paediatric lead at Cancer Research UK. And as you say, it it is an uncomfortable topic and I've been in this role now for about three years and I still find it an uncomfortable topic mm -hmm. to talk about and to think about but we really do need to talk about it and raise awareness for it. My role is around understanding the unique challenges that are faced in improving our understanding of children's cancers and how we can get new treatments for children with cancer. So that's by working with the scientists in the labs and the doctors in the hospitals who are treating children with cancer. Because they're faced with unique challenges, children's cancers are different to adult cancers because of the types of cancers that children get, the fact that they're getting them at such a young time in their lives so their patient journey is completely different. The impact of their treatment and having their treatment at such a young time in their lives is so hard. And it's also the long-term side effects that people with cancer get. These differences lead to really complex challenges for the researchers in order to improve outcomes for children and young people with cancers. So what I do is I try and understand those a bit better. Mm -hmm. Can we understand them in order to ensure that they get the dedicated research and work needed to happen to help improve outcomes for children and young people with cancer? Because it is through medical research that we can start improving these things. Have you seen shifts in the, in the time that you've been in this role? That's actually a really good question. I think at the moment we can really reflect back on that as we're in Children's Cancer Awareness Month and it is a time to reflect on the progress that's been made. So there was real progress sort of in the 70s and 80s where survival rates for, for children did increase. And over the last 40 years, we have seen a doubling in survival rates, but that plateaued. And, um, and we saw those survival rates plateauing for children and young people. But in the last three years, what I've personally seen is a difference in momentum. We mm. can see that the 
children's cancer community is really coming together with a good, strong voice with people who have been affected by childhood cancers, the charities, the researchers, and they're really shining a light on this area that children can and do get cancer. It's interesting, isn't it? Because as you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah, like, of course, with the advent of social media, actually. And because it is such a um, horrendous thing to think about, that is why it could just not be spoken about, you know, because it would be it is so much easier to try and pretend these things don't exist because it's something that we all wish wasn't the case. But that doesn't move things forward, does it? It doesn't. And I think that by shining a light, people realise that more research does need to happen. And I think that these things are happening. And you can see that the community is coming together more. So just in the last year, we've had new treatments for childhood cancers. Cancer Research UK has been funding a platform trial which enables children to get access to new treatments. And so you can see that there is a momentum shift starting to happen. What's the relationship between cancer research and a hospital and a patient? And for me, for example, if I donated money? The money that you donate through fundraising or donating your clothes, for instance, to a CRUK store or a TK Maxx Give Up Clothes for Good campaign, that money goes to Cancer Research UK and then we use it to fund this research in the hospital. So we would use it to fund a clinical trial Um, So at the moment, we have around 20 clinical trials that we're supporting for children and young people with cancer and also goes towards a clinical trials network, which helps ensure that children and young people with cancer get access to those experimental therapies. And also, we need to improve our understanding of the disease. And one of the ways that in the money that is raised through our fundraising campaigns and through donations has led to us launching the Cancer Research UK for Children and Young People Brain Tumor Centre of Excellence. Now, this centre of excellence is supported by TK Maxx, and what it does is it brings together global researchers in order for them to come together and pit their knowledge and understanding to speed up us understanding the disease better to get those new and novel treatments for children. The reason for this podcast is that, as you say, September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. I mean, the clue is in the title, but Mm -hmm. what is the objective and what is the outcome and what can people listening at home or wherever they're listening, what can we all do? Childhood Cancer Awareness Month is a month where everybody comes together in the entire community to try and raise awareness that children can and do get cancer, that children's cancer treatment can be hard and that we do need new and better treatments for children with cancer. And it helps children with cancer to be able to tell their story about what the realities of having cancer is, what are the complexities of children and young people's cancers. It also does give us a time to reflect on the progress that has been made, but to consider where more needs to happen. And so for those at home, you can get involved just buying a gold pin badge, which is the colour of Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, and just buying one of these badges and, and showing your support, getting involved online in the conversation. So you can get involved at hashtag Childhood Cancer Awareness, hashtag CCAM, so C-C-A-M, and, and also looking online. So we have lots of information at cancerresearch.org forward slash children and young people 
And you could also get involved by giving up your clothes for good. Take your clothes and your homeware to a TK Maxx store where they will sell them in a CRUK store. And all funds raised from this will go to research for children and young people's cancer. That's a really doable action, isn't it? Seasonal change is always a, a good time for a, a good clear out. <laughs> but also, yeah, as you, I hadn't really thought about the power of the extended community all coming together because, yeah, you can follow people or be aware of individual strands of this, but it, it, anything where people come together and shout loudly as one is always powerful, isn't it? It really is. And I've always been passionate about working in areas where there hasn't been enough research happening. So I, I originally got into science because my sister told me that science was easier than than learning about languages or English or something. I think that is, she's, she spun you a lie there. She totally spun me a lie. We were teenagers. <laughs> she's five years older than me and I believe anything she told me. So um, I worked at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. And whilst I was there, I saw the real impact of genes going wrong or something going wrong before children were even born. And often these things were rare. Often we didn't know why. And often apart from helping to support and, and to alleviate medically and surgically, actually there, there wasn't a lot that could be done. So I've always wanted to really drive understanding around these areas. And by that, I just mean areas where there's still a lot of progress to be made. And especially for children, where we can really help to make sure that whilst these disorders, diseases are rare, that actually we can really help by improving our understanding and treatments of them. Mm. I mean, it's something for me sitting here amazingly empowering that there's something that feels so complex and so misunderstood. But at least you are you're doing something, you know, scientific research blows my mind. <laughs> Unfathomable, but but then again, it does go back to why these months, these kind of milestone months, are important. Because otherwise, the year's just the year, and you haven't got any point of reflection. I suppose. Actually, we've done a lot this year, and and so has mm. everybody. We've mm. all been coming together to do these things. You know, we've we've managed to support this amazing piece of research over here, and and we've seen this new drug come out over here, and this amazing paper come out over here, and we can really see that there is progress that's happening. Well, I mean, I feel like humbled and grateful to people like you who are doing the real work. <laughs> it's absolutely not me. It's the scientists and the doctors in the hospitals that are doing all the hard work. I'm just trying to make sure that the support and work from Cancer Research UK and from the campaign that's needed to, to help support this. Well, you're doing a remarkable job as well. So well done. And the name of the podcast is Honestly. And so I always like to ask people, if you could have an honest conversation with one person, who would it be and what would you say? Oh, I was so hoping you weren't going to ask me this question. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I have. I, uh, me and my sister used to play this game with each other when we were little. Did you? And um, the answer me and my sister used to always give when we were little was Shakespeare because we wanted to know if he actually meant all the stuff that everybody's wrote that he meant afterwards. <laughs> I mean, my, my hunch is he didn't. 
What do you think? That's what we thought. So I remember she would help me with my homework and the tailor's like, there's no way he came up with all this stuff. (laughs) Well, I think that is one of the best answers I've ever had. What would my teenage self have said? He would have said like Robbie Williams, but you said Shakespeare, which is much more intellectual. (laughs) Well, on that note, on Shakespeare being the person you picked, I've been Clemmie Telford and this excellent human has been Shona Scales and this has been Honestly Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe and tell your mates all about it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. This episode was sponsored by TK Maxx. Since 2004, TK Maxx customers and associates have raised a whopping £37 million for Cancer Research UK, and that figure is still rising. You can help too by getting involved with their Give Up Clothes for Good campaign. Simply drop off a bag of your pre-loved quality clothes, accessories or homeware at your local TK Maxx store, something you can do all year round, which is perfect for whenever you have that clear out. And your items will then be sold at Cancer Research UK shops. All money raised will support research into cancers affecting children and young people. Thank you so much, TK Maxx, for sponsoring such a humbling but also inspiring episode of Honestly. Honestly.